Urbana, Veritas, how are y'all? Happy December, it's December 4th. I just, I just got to confess that I won, it should be about June right now, and uh, why is it already December? It, it goes so stinking fast, but nonetheless, it's here, we can't slow or stop time, it's in the hands of God. And uh, I guess we'll just roll with it and trust him, as they've been saying. But as I said, my name is Matthew. Um, I am, I've done so well at fighting colds. For the last two weeks, I've just seen people fall all around you. How many of you have seen people just bite the dust? And there's some nasty stuff going around. And I made it till yesterday. And so now uh, here I am. I'm praying that my voice lasts this whole time. And then they gave me five chapters to do, so... We're going to be here till three, but um, I'm thankful like Richard's back there going like, well, they gave me 10. And I was like, was that based off of wisdom or age? Uh, and uh, so no, I'm certainly it is wisdom and uh, just really appreciated that too. And a lot of what we're heading into today echoes what Richard said at the beginning of last week. Like, I, and, and for me personally, I find it really encouraging. Like we're sitting between two mega holidays, right? Thanksgiving and Christmas. And so often we think about or perhaps hear from our, our family in this season. And, and it's painful. Um, I think for myself personally, I, um, my wife actually, my wife loves to watch I Love Lucy, you know? And every episode ends with everyone laughing about something, whether it's totally ridiculous, which it is mostly. Um, but there's this, this mythical family almost. And it's like, I think I've bought into that as that is the normal family. And uh, I, I don't experience that, you know, whether it's myself or whether it's talking to people, it's navigating like, who are you going to have to sit next to at Christmas? You know, who, what story is going to be brought up this time? Like, do we have to go through that again? And I find it so encouraging looking at the book of Genesis because, as Richard said, there's, some not, there's just some crazy, crazy, crazy stories in there. And perhaps some of you have never been exposed to the book of Genesis in the way. Um, and a lot of us, I think, have spent our time maybe around religious people or churches that try to, like, cover for God. Like, oh, God wouldn't let that happen. And uh, I've got bad news for you. He does. And he faithfully works through it. Faithfully and consistently works through it. He works through the brokenness of these families, and he works through the brokenness of the people. Nothing thwarts his plan. And so we kind of like dive back into that series again here as we continue on in chapter 37. So like I said, we've got five chapters. So grab your seatbelt, buckle in, and we are going to get going. And the question that I want to ask us, so whether it's family conflict or conflict in general, like how how are you in conflict? When conflict rears its ugly face in front of you how, do you, how do you handle it? Like, what are the actions that you take? What are the thoughts that you think when conflict is in front of you? And even as you kind of look back at this year, what conflicts did you face this year that are over? Did you face some in 2022? Did you... Did you come out the other side for some of them? Maybe not all of them, but for some of them? Like, think about that for a moment here. And let's read a little bit about Joseph. So Richard talked about Joseph's dad, Jacob, or his name was changed to Israel. 
and kind of the story of chaos in his life from marriage to kids to wrestling with God and ignoring God. And here we come to the story of his son and kind of focus in on Joseph. So we are in Genesis chapter 37, and I'm going to read Genesis 37 verses 1 through 11. Jacob lived in the land of his fathers, sojourning in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, now remember that, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy um, with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was a son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully with him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Like, this is going from bad to worse. I mean, I would ask you to raise your hand, but you're like, does that feel like your family? Um, this, is, this family's broken. This family has some dysfunction in it. And so you have Joseph, who is loved by God, and remembering um, his dad, Jacob's parents. Jacob's parents both had favorites, too. And so this generational issue of favoritism is, is flowing down. And so of all these sons that he has, he likes this one. He likes this one. He likes Joseph. And it's not like he's hiding it. Not everyone back in that day and age would have gotten a coat. Not everyone would have gotten a coat in color. Uh, it was expensive. It would have been something that was prized. And Jacob shows his love for it, and his brothers reject it. I mean, it, it kind of, by the flesh, it makes sense. Like, why, why does dad like you? Like, what do you have? You're little. Little, 17. That's another thing that struck me. I got caught up in my children's books, my children's Bibles, and you start to think that Joseph is like seven or eight. And he's actually probably, again, it says he's 17 or a little bit past 17 now. And so he uh, is, is loved by his dad, right? And it's kind of like, I don't know where his heart is at in this, but he doesn't make it any better necessarily either. So he has two dreams. If, let's go to verse 6. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, right? You picture a wheat field, and you're out cutting it, perhaps with a sigh or something that looks like a sigh. You bind it up to stand it, and you tie it, and you have all these sheaves scattered across the field. Well, Joseph's sheave, it stands up straight. And what do the brothers' sheaves do? They bow down. And they hated him even more, right? They're out in the field, binding sheaves. And his brother's sheaves bow down to him. Verse, verse 8. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Then he dreamed another dream. And you're like, no, Joseph. Bad. Stop. Don't tell them this one. Just hold it in your heart. Ponder it. You and God. Like, don't share it with these guys. But nope, he, he shares it. This dream is different, right? Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And when he told it to his father and to his brothers, even his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you've dreamed? 
Shall I and my, your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in his heart. So you see this picture of a family of brothers, a favored brother clearly displayed by a father who loves him a lot and having this ability to dream and seemingly prophetic dreams that are going to happen. Now, it's interesting, like, this isn't, I don't believe, a story about dreams and prophecy. This is a story about God continuing to work through history and through all kinds of situations to preserve the seed that he promised to Adam and Eve. And it's coming through Joseph. But let's not get ahead of ourselves here, right? So this family is a family of shepherds, and so they don't always shepherd the flock in the same place because they'll destroy the grass. And so the brothers are off, and Joseph wants a report on what is happening out there with his brothers. So he calls Joseph to him and says, hey, um, go see what your brothers are up to. Go see how it's going out there and bring back a report. Oh, by the way, at the beginning there, it says that Joseph had in the past brought a bad report of his brothers. But he comes to his father and he obeys his father and he goes to find his brothers and they've moved from one spot to the next. And when he's coming to find them, the brothers see him coming and they say, this is our time. Let's kill this dreamer. And so they plot and plan to kill him. And Reuben, one of his older brothers, kind of intervenes and says, well, come on, brothers, let's, let's not kill him. Let's just, there's a pit, there's pits around us. Let's throw him in the pit or perhaps an old well didn't have any water in it, and let's just leave him there, okay? That way his blood, it's not on our hands. So they're like, sweet. We'll get rid of this dude one way or another. Joseph comes, and they chuck him in a pit, and then it's like, all right, it's lunchtime. Who brought their lunch? And so they stop and eat while Joseph is in the pit. And as they eat, what was common in those days is that traders were walking by. And, and Judah is like, you know, I don't want my brother's blood on my hands either. So he proposes a second idea. He's like, let's sell him. Like, not only do we get rid of the problem, we get some silver out of this deal. And they're like, you know, that's not bad. Let's sell a brother. And so they apparently at lunch, around lunch, they pull him out of the pit. They see the Ishmaelite traders over there, and they're like, we're done with you. So they pull him out. And the brothers that were to love him, the brothers that were to have known him, the brothers that were family, sell him. For 20 pieces of silver. The people who were to have known him. The people who were to have loved him most. Celebrated him. Sell him. 20 pieces of silver and he's gone. See you Joseph. See you Ishmaelites. We're moving on. So Reuben comes back. He freaks out. Because he's like where's my brother? And they're like hey we sold him. It's okay. We got 20 pieces of silver. And so then it's like it gets worse, right? It's not only that Joseph is now gone. It's that they're like, well, let's take his coat. Let's shred it up. Let's dump some blood on it, and we'll bring it back to dad. That'll be what dad wants to hear. It's like the the cell phone call from, well, from hell. Hey, dad, we found this coat. It's got colors on it or sleeves. It's tore up, and it's soaked in blood. Is Is this Joseph's coat? And his dad seeing the coat, which he'd probably invested in or spent time perhaps making, he's like, oh, my son, I'm dead. I'm going to die. I'm going to go to the pit longing for my son. Undoubtedly, he's been tore up by animals. 
And so Joseph, or so Jacob goes on for years thinking that his youngest son, sadly in some sense his favorite son, has been perhaps shredded by a lion and dead. And now this story takes like an interesting turn, okay? In Genesis, that's Genesis 37, but in 38, it kind of enters into Judah's line of people. And I just want to read some stuff from my notes because this chapter is really, really complicated, okay? So you have a picture here of God preserving his seed, Adam and Eve. I am going to, from you, prepare seed. And this seed is going to crush the serpent's head. Yeah, his heel will be bruised, but this seed wins. And so there's this story going through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, of God preserving the seed that we all know, again, we know this now, as Jesus Christ, who comes to address the issue of sin in our world and in our own lives. But Joseph isn't named in that line. Judah is. And so it's at this point in the story that the writer Moses deviates and starts telling us a little bit about who Judah is. How he went and got a woman from another nation. And through, quite honestly, horrendously complex sexual immorality produces a seed. If you look at Matthew chapter 1 as you're reading through the genealogies as you come up to Christmas perhaps. It says here in Matthew chapter 1 verse 3. Judah... So that's Joseph's brother, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And then it goes through a name and it builds its way up to Jesus Christ. And so you see through this immorality, God working. God works through immorality. Where we think we derail the plan, God says, I've got a plan. And I will keep on working. And so while Joseph isn't in the line of Jesus, we see here, and I don't want to get too far ahead, but Joseph is a part of preserving the line of Jesus. There's a famine coming. They're going to need food. And so Judah, through his foibles and failures, tests God. And this proves that God is going to preserve the line from Eve to Jesus Christ through floods, through tremendous wickedness, and through famines. God's promise, it will succeed. But we have the benefit of this. And now Joseph has been taken from this pit and sold to the Ishmaelites and then hauled to Egypt. He's in Potiphar's house. Certainly he had heard about the story of God coming to his great-grandpa Abraham. He had heard about God saying, I'm going to make of you a great nation. But what do I have to do with it? I'm not even in the land of Canaan anymore. I might be hundreds of miles away. I'm out. What is God just abandoning me along the Nile? Like what could God do with me? Right? Joseph probably has a lot of questions. But remember, you and I have the benefit of knowing that Jesus comes. You and I have the benefit of reading the rest of Genesis. Like picture with Joseph being sold by your brothers And now you're in this dude Potiphar's house. You're away from Abraham's descendants. You're in a foreign land. I wonder how many of us in the face of that adversity would be like, I'm out. God, I followed you. Where's my reward? God, I was part of your family. Where's my reward? But Joseph chooses a different way. So Joseph has been brought to Potiphar, we see in the beginning of chapter 39. 
And uh, he becomes the captain of the man's house. And so we just see with him like a peace. Like he wish you would like tell me more about how you responded. But you see him becoming a slave, becoming a bondservant of Potiphar. And you don't see rebellion in him. Let's read about some of the things he did. Genesis chapter 39 verses 2 through 6 says this. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that Yahweh was with him. And that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed. So Joseph found favor in in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From that time, um, from the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. This is a different context than us. The odds of any of you in this room being sold by your siblings into slavery, though they might want to, probably won't happen this next week or next year. That's a blessing for you, okay? Um, But we walk into things we're not expecting day after day after day. We walk into Mondays. Where certainly the problem isn't so grand, but there's a test within us to say, like, who are you going to serve? Who are you going to follow? This is epic. This is epic to be sold to someone else. And yet you don't see any rebellion stir in his heart. You don't necessarily see any plotting on how am I going to get away? How am I going to kill Potiphar? How am I going to get out of this? You don't, you don't see that in him. You see him doing what he was asked to do well, so much so that his slave master saw God in him. That's what, jo- that's what Joseph does consistently. But as he works the house and as he takes care of all that his master has, Potiphar's wife catches, he catches her eye. And she begins to beg him almost to commit sexual immorality with her. And this is his response to her in chapter 39, verses 8 through 9. It says this. But he refused And said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am. Nor has he kept back anything from me except you, for you are his wife. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So Joseph stands in the face of trial. He stands in the face of temptation. There's someone begging him, like, hey, let's go fool around. Let's take the easy way out. Come on, let's go. And not only does he resist her, but he knew that sexual immorality would be sin against the God who had sustained him. The very God who was taking care of him in this very physical, very practical temptation, he knew that the God that he served was better. The God of his forefathers who had been fulfilling promises, he knew that they were better. He was better. And he resists. And so if you read on here, um, you would see the story of how she waits 
and longs for a day when all the other servants are out of the house. And when he had the opportunity to take advantage of the situation for his own pleasure, he doesn't. He literally practically runs away when he's faced with temptation. And she catches the coat that he has on, rips it off him as he's out the door. I will not commit sexual immorality. And there's this reality. There's been a lot of bad things that have happened to Joseph. Doesn't he deserve a little fun? I mean, come on, you've been sold. Your family sold you. Have some joy. Have some fun. Say, Richard, can I get a glass of water? And he doesn't. He runs away. He ran in the face of temptation. Oh, how we could learn from Joseph in that. But she starts spinning her story. And it's so common how she spins it. I see men and women do this all the time, right? It's someone else's fault. Look at this Hebrew that you brought in. You brought in to mock us. And they use the word laugh. Like he brought, he brought him in to laugh at us. And it's in the sense of like make sport of us. You brought him in to tease and tempt us. And he's making sport of us. This Hebrew, which would have been a racist saying, like this scoundrel from up north, you brought him in to fool around with us, to make light of us, to make sport with us. Failure. And needless to say, there was some righteous anger from the story he heard. And he hauls Joseph back to prison. So Joseph goes from being sold by his brothers to success in the house of Potiphar. Working hard, helping bless his master's life. And now he's back to the pit. He's back to the pit. Why? What's going on here? Let's go to Genesis chapter 39, verses 20 through 23. And I I just love these verses. I love this text. Because God is with his servant, Joseph. Right? God is with him. 39 verses 20 through 23, it says this. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners that were in the prison. Okay? Like, this man doesn't lose. It's like a reoccurring theme in Joseph's life. Thank you, sir. Um, it was like a reoccurring theme. Where Joseph went, God was, and God blessed. Whatever situation was going to happen next, God was there, and God would bless. You see it over and over again. So Joseph was sold by his brothers. He didn't see that coming. Joseph was blessed in Potiphar's house. He didn't see that coming. Joseph was sent to the pit, to the prison. Didn't see that coming. And Joseph works as a servant of the leader of the prison. And God is faithful the whole entire time. God is with Joseph. He loved him, cared for him. And Joseph is quick to point people to God throughout this whole situation. Shortly after, two people from the court of um, Pharaoh were there. We're going to skip the next verse. And a baker and a cupbearer were brought into this prison. And Joseph not only took care of the prison, like 
cleaned up after and did the stuff, but he actually cared about the people there. And one time Joseph comes into the prison and he sees that their eyes, their faces are downcast. And he's like, guys, what's going on? Are you okay? And they both had dreams. And the cupbearer dreams a dream about a vine and it has three branches on it and there are grapes growing on it. And at the appointed time, he crushes the grapes into a glass, into a cup, and he gives it to Pharaoh. And Joseph says, like, listen, guys, the, the, the determination, the, the meanings of dreams, they're the Lord's. Tell me your dream. And so he hears this dream, and he says, listen, cupbearer, this is what this means. In those three branches, the three days. And in three days, you're going to be lifted back up as cupbearer to Pharaoh once again. And the baker is with them, and he's like, sweet. Okay, my dream. I've got three tiers of bread on my head. And the birds, they keep eating out of the top. What on earth does this dream mean? And Joseph says, listen, in three days you will too be lifted up. But you will be lifted up and killed for, for whatever crime that you had committed. And Joseph tells him the dream. And to the cupbearer, Joseph says, like, dude, when you get before Pharaoh, remember me. Tell him about me. Tell him about why I'm there. And that's really one of the only times you really see that Joseph is like, hey, I'm not supposed to be down here. But the cupbearer forgets. And in chapter 41, we learn that two years passes. Two years. What were you doing in your mid-20s? What do you want to do in your mid-20s? This isn't two days. This isn't two hours. This is two years. 365 times two. He waits. But it turns out that Pharaoh also has a dream. And Pharaoh has a dream that perplexes him, and he calls all his wise men to him, and they're like, yeah, we don't know. We have no idea what this dream means. And the cupbearer is like, shoot, shoot. I remember my sin. There's this guy. We were in prison. Me and the baker. Remember that guy? We had dreams. And his God gave him the interpretation of the dreams. And Pharaoh's like, bring this man to me right now. And at the beginning of 41, they get him out of prison. They clean him up. They polish his head. And they're like, go, tell this man what he's dealing with here. So if you go with me to Genesis chapter 41, we're going to look at verses 14 through 24. Actually, we're going to start at verse 16. Joseph answered Pharaoh, right? Because Pharaoh's like, I've had a dream. Tell me the dream. And Joseph says, listen, I ain't going to tell you the dream, but God's the one who can do it. Verse 17, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile, seven cows, plump and attractive. Now, we're in Iowa, and this might be safe to do. You could call it sows, okay? Sows, because we're going to talk about corn in a minute, right? So seven plump and beautiful sows come out of the river, cows, whatever. You guys aren't going for it. All right? They come out of the river. And then another seven come out, and they're ugly and hideous. I'll just read it. Uh, I lost my spot. Uh, verse 16. Yeah, and Joseph answered Pharaoh, it's not me, it's going to tell you, it's God. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed on the reed grass. Seven other cows came up, and they were poor, and they were ugly and thin such as I've never seen in all the land of Egypt. Like, remember that. And the thin, ugly cows ate the first seven cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven 
ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them. And the thin ears, they swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain these things, right? So here you see his faithfulness. Joseph has been faithful in Potiphar's house. Joseph has been faithful in the pit. And Joseph is faithful in the face of Pharaoh. Pharaoh was seen as a god. And to say, like, listen, you're a god. You can't interpret your dream. I know a god who can interpret dream. I know the dream maker. I know Yahweh. And Joseph, in the face of Pharaoh, is faithful to Yahweh. And he has Pharaoh tell him this dream. And he boldly speaks to Pharaoh, basically one of the king, a king of, of an empire in the known world. And so it says this in verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven good years. And the uh, seven ears... Seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will be seven years of great plenty throughout the land of Egypt. But after them there will arise seven years of famine. And all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. And the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that this thing is fixed. It is going to happen. And so Joseph then gives a plan. He's like, listen, Pharaoh, build bin sites in all your towns. Take a fifth of the crop. Put it in there. Save, save, save. This famine, it is so terrible. And Pharaoh's like, who's going to lead a project like this? Egypt is kind of a big deal. And he asks his people, who is a man of God? Who has the spirit of God who can orchestrate such a thing? And they conclude, well, Joseph, you, you have the spirit of God. And so here you see Joseph coming from the pit, being washed quickly so he could be in the presence of Pharaoh, becoming second. In Pharaoh's command. Given the second chariot. He's given a ring. He's given clothing. He's given the second chariot. He's given power and he's given a wife. I mean, that's kind of a big deal. From slave to king, essentially. The man who had been faithful to God no matter the circumstances. And that's the question that we we kind of started with. Like, how do you act in the face of trial and turmoil? Whether it be losing a life of someone you love, or whether it be a disease, or whether it be the inability to have children, or whether it be the loss of a job, how do you act? And I would want some of us to say, like, let's be like Joseph, but I I think that would be really discouraging. My prayer for us as a church here is to lean into God, lean into God, Veritas, just as Joseph did, to feel God's love and passion for him in the face of trials. Here's the idea that I want you to remember. God sees you and sustains you in difficulty. Lean into faithfulness and follow him in your trials. Whether it be a Monday trial, 
whether it be a Monday afternoon trial, whether it be a nap time trial, whether it be a job trial, whether it be a family trial, whether it be Christmas Eve with your family, lean into the faithfulness of God. Lean into the faithfulness of God. Trust him that he is at work. Joseph was out of the picture. Joseph was away from the seed. He was away from Judah. He was away from Judah's ridiculously messed up family. Yet God was using him to make something of Perez, Judah's son. God was using him to preserve the seed that God had promised all the way in Egypt. You and I have a promise that Christ is coming again. And quite frankly, in the middle of Iowa, I don't know how I am helping to that end. But I do know that God uses the least of these from the broken families to do great things for the spreading of his fame. And while I might seem disconnected from the actual return of Jesus Christ, the King, I'm a part of it as a Christian. And day by day, trials come up and and hit me in the face. Deadlines that I stress out about, family issues that I wrestle with, decisions that need to be made. And the God who is coming again, he's with me. And I need to lean into him. I need to trust him. You and I have the benefit of reading the outcome of this story. We've read through 13 years of Joseph's life. That's it, 13 years. But when he was thrown in a pit by his brothers, he had no idea what was coming. I'm going to be the second in Egypt. It's going to be awesome. I'll do this pit. It'll be sweet. I love pits anyway. There's worms down here. That's weird. There was no like Potiphar being thrown in. There was no like, I'm going to the palace. This is just one step. Throw me in the pit. All he knew was there was lies. Potiphar, I wouldn't touch your wife. You gave me all this authority. I wasn't going to touch her. And yet he saw the pit. And when he was in the pit, there was no sign of rescue. But he was faithful to God. And God did this. Now it's tough for me in this day and age to preach this text because some of you will, might come out of here thinking, I'm going to be vice president of the United States of America. And it's just not true. God blesses you with his presence. God gives us himself to walk through the temptations and trials that we face. God was with Joseph in the pit. God was with Joseph in the prison. God is with you in the family disarray. God is with you through the painful holiday seasons. God is with you in the loss of job or person. God is present. And when I don't know the outcome, I don't know if there's another pit or I don't know if there's a palace. But I know there's a God. And he's been faithful to me like he was faithful to Joseph. And he ain't a liar. And so I know he'll be faithful to you. And he will walk you through pits and he will walk you through palaces consistently, time and time again. Lean in. God sees you. God sustains you in your difficulty. Lean into his faithfulness and follow him. In the face of bosses, in the face of discontent people, in the face of liars, serve God. 
Whether they make the right decisions, you make the right decisions. Because God is with you. The end of our chapter tells a story of Joseph. Like I said, he had been given a wife and he has two children. God blesses him. His one child, he names Manasseh, which means God made me forget all my hardships and all my father's house. Through these things, God, Joseph saw the hand of God. Not only was Potiphar and Pharaoh seeing the hand of God in Joseph's life, Joseph was seeing the hand of God in his life, and he knew that God was ministering to his deepest wounds, my family. And at this point in the text, he doesn't get his family back. That's next week. At this point, he just doesn't know what's coming. And then he has a second son, and he names him Ephraim, which means God has made fruitful in the land of my affliction. So Joseph isn't burying his, hand, his head in his hand saying like, I am not afflicted, I am not afflicted, this did not happen, this has not happened. He's like, I have been afflicted and God has been present. Some of you have been afflicted and God has been present. And God has been good. God is working and moving. Paul said it this way in Ephesians chapter 4. I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 4, it says this. I think Joseph would echo this. He says this, not that I'm speaking of being in need, Paul writing from a prison. For I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, I've skipped over a part here. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound in any and every situation. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul's pronoun was referring to Jesus Christ. Joseph's pronoun would have been referring to Yahweh. I know, how to, I know what it's like. like. This isn't like let's sit in this pit and watch cable and then we'll go work out. This is a terrible place, probably filled with terrible people. And he rightly serves the Lord as he serves his masters. And they see him serve the Lord. And so church, Joseph's bones are gone. They're powder, they're they're gone. But his God is not gone. His God is present here with us, what does it look like for people in Urbana, Vinton, Walker, Independence, and these surrounding communities to seek after him and trust him in affliction? Again, some of you are disconnecting because you're not going to prison. Praise God you're not going to prison, but you are facing trials. You're facing changes at work, changes in the nation. Perhaps the economy is a thorn in your side. Where's your heart? How are you leaning into your maker? Who knows what's going to happen in eight years? He knows what's going to happen in 10 years. He knows what's going to happen in 20 years. Those trials that you had in 2022, the few that you thought about that you made it through, look at where you're at. You made it through. It might have been the loss of a loved one, the changing of a job, changing of a house, I don't know, surviving a storm, surviving an argument. 
You're through. You didn't do that. God was faithful to you. He is faithful and he will be faithful. Like, let's be a church that hopes in that. Let's be a church that walks from trial to conflict, hoping and trusting in the Lord. As we enter this time of communion, we have kind of the crux of our hope. Joseph knew that there was a seed coming. His name would be Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, he would deal with our biggest issue. Your biggest issue probably isn't your family. Your biggest issue probably isn't your bank statement. There's a bigger issue that each one of us deals with, and it is sin. In fact, we were born dead in our trespasses and sins in which we all walked, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of the disobedient. We were all there. And that spirit, that sense of our old self, clings to us and plagues us. It kicks us when we're down. And God is continuing to transform our life. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together. By grace, you have been saved. And so, as we come into this communion time, ask yourself the question like, how am I responding to conflict? How am I responding to the turmoil I face? Insert your situation there. Can you say with Joseph, I have seen the faithfulness of the Lord? Or are there ways you've tried to fix the problem that you need to re- confess and repent of? God was faithful to us in Jesus Christ. God will rescue. God will heal. He is coming again. Amen? Trust him. Be right with God. Remember his promise that he fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And at the right time, when your heart is ready, you come and take communion if you can. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful for Joseph, a person probably more similar to us than we think. That you protected and preserved. God, we're so thankful for his testimony of your faithfulness. God, help us believe that you are faithful. Help our unbelief. God, in areas where we're like, we're out, what could God do with me? God, help us believe in you. God, where sin has crept up and caused doubt in our lives, God, help us repent and confess of that sin right now and be made right with you. God, and I can't help but wonder about the person in this room who doesn't believe in Jesus at all. God, open their eyes. And there's a hope that truly is a solution for this brokenness in our families and in our society. And his name is Jesus. Cause belief, Father. Get all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.